Uh, today's reading, Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you so much for your word and we ask that you would be pleased to unleash its power in our lives. Send your spirit to come and do what only you can do. And please help me as I preach and help us all to benefit from what you would say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been said that uh, one of our most fundamental needs as human beings is to feel safe. Uh, for me, it reminds me of uh, the day my mum very sadly died of cancer when I was a child. On the day she died, I still vividly remember my dad um, picking me up and putting me um, on his shoulders and uh, taking me for a walk as a seven-year-old. And uh, at that time, we lived on a new-build estate uh, and I still remember sort of vividly walking through um, these half-completed houses um, on my dad's shoulders. And even though I knew that what had happened was uh, painful and disruptive in a way that I couldn't fully understand as a seven-year-old at that point, I did feel safe. I felt secure with my dad. Safety is so important for us, isn't it? In fact, I'd go so far as to say uh, safety is one of the foundational needs that we have as human beings. Psycho psychologists know it. Uh, business leaders know it. Politicians know it. Uh, a few years ago, Google published um, the results of um, a two-year research project um, looking at what makes for great and kind of flourishing and successful teams. And can you guess what the number one trait for successful teams was? There was five in total, but right at the top was safety. Leaders take note. Psychological safety. When we experience safety, we flourish as human beings. Creativity is unleashed and growth happens. In kingdom terms, when we feel secure, when we feel safe, when we feel loved by God and by each other, 
There's no limit to what can happen. And of course, what Google and psychologists and business leaders are tapping into is simply something that the Bible tapped into way before with so much greater power and relevance for us. And that's why uh, the title for today's message is Real Security, What It Is and How to Have It. Real security, what it is and how to have it. So in verse one, he says, uh, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. David, the writer of this psalm, uh, says that the source, the real basis for security is God himself. And uh, I want to submit to you that there's nothing so important for us as we grapple with the impact of the COVID pandemic on us individually and corporately. There's nothing so important than to experience the security and the safety of God's presence. It is so fundamental. Uh, There's an acronym doing the rounds at the moment, uh, which I heard the other day at a leadership conference uh, Sam and I were at at Soul Survivor. And it's the acronym VUCA. And VUCA stands for, and maybe you can relate to these words in your own experience, Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. These are words many people are using to describe the disruption of the pandemic and the impact on business and lives. For me as an associate vicar, I'm relatively new to ministry, uh, but speaking with more seasoned pastors, um, the thing I'm hearing is the same basically saying that lockdown, in retrospect, was actually relatively simple. All you have to do is say, we're closing, and it's done. But leading out of lockdown is so much more demanding and stressful because there are so many unknowns. In the Church of England, the number of church leaders and vicars uh, signing off sick with burnout, stress, and anxiety has gone through the roof. And of course, these are trends that we're seeing across society, not just the church. For me, I've regularly found myself sort of thinking, God, what am I supposed to do in this situation? I have no blueprint for the situations that the pandemic has so often thrown up. But here's the encouragement for us. When we reach a place of total desperation, so often that is when the breakthrough comes. So often it's when we come to the end of ourselves that God steps in. I heard Rupert say, actually, in a sermon a few uh, months ago that I found online, he said um, that he used to think the Christian life had seasons of battle and blessing, followed by seasons of blessing. So there'd be a season of blessing and then a season um, of battle. But he said, what I've realized is that actually the battles and the blessings actually come in double track um, at the same time. I think that is very true, and I think that is the writer of this psalm's experience. He's seen the blessing and the deliverance of the Lord, but he's also facing circumstances now as he writes it, we don't know exactly what they are, that are pushing him to ask afresh for God's protection and help. And maybe that's your situation. You're a Christian. You know the goodness of God. You've seen God 
do remarkable things in the past and in your own life, but you're now facing situations where relying on past mercies, relying on past answers to prayer, past miracles, simply won't cut it in the face of the scary circumstances that are right in front of your face right now. So the family struggles, the scary diagnosis, the bullying boss, the temptations of apparent success. I don't know what it is for you. And you find yourself praying. Verse one, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. This passage is going to teach us that accessing that kind of real security, that real safety, it's a question of confidence, um, that it's a question of belonging, and that it's a question of enjoyment. Confidence, belonging, and enjoyment. So firstly, that it's a question of confidence. In verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. The key to having real security is having confidence in the right place. He says, you are my Lord. And then later in verse eight, he says, with him, that is God at my right hand, I will not be shaken. It's not hard to see, is it, why this psalm is often called a psalm of confidence. This confidence in God just sort of oozes from the page. And yet notice from that in verse two, a key part of this confidence is also knowing where not to put your confidence. He says, I say to the Lord, apart from you, I have no good thing. He actively puts his confidence in the Lord and he equally actively refuses to put any confidence in himself. That's such a challenge for us in London, isn't it? I find it is, where so often the way we get by in the world is by presenting a strong and together image, letting the world see our strengths and pushing down and hiding our vulnerabilities and weaknesses and hoping people don't see them. But this psalm is quite clear. He says, apart from you, God, I have nothing. It's as though he says, every single good thing I enjoy, from the air I breathe to um, the salvation that I enjoy, is a gift of his grace. He says, if there's anything good in my life, anything at all, it's not just a kind of false modesty he's got here, a kind of religious sounding humility. He's saying this is actually true. This is objectively true. It is all God's grace from first to last. And so I put my confidence in God because he's the only reason there's anything good in my life anyway. And knowing that has the potential to breed a deep and lasting security. Our secular culture is obsessed with identity, isn't it? And who am I really? That's the cry of our generation, I think. And our culture says to us that we need to find our source of security ourselves. So therefore, uh, we are defined by our career, Uh, We're defined by our romantic relationships. We're defined by our children or our parenting or I don't know what it is for you. But these things are incredibly 
precarious, aren't they? They can never be secure by their very nature because they are changeable. Relationships end, people die. Careers end, children move away. As you can tell, I'm a real sunshine this evening. And these things actually harm us as well when we make them ultimate. However, when we see what David sees in this psalm, when we see what he says in verse 4, it's such a deep line, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You alone. See, when we see that God is the only source of any good in our lives, when we see that actually God provides us with a beautiful identity that isn't dependent in any way on us, gosh, it just has so much power to fill us with a deep and abiding confidence to face testing times. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but, and how's this for an identity, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Now that is how you have the right kind of confidence. You root your confidence in the grace of God. You root your confidence in the kindness and the mercy of God. Because, and here's the glorious truth, if you didn't create your identity to begin with, then you can't lose your identity either. If you didn't create your identity to begin with, then you can't lose it. If God says, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you are my forgiven and beloved and beautiful son or daughter, who can argue with that? It's who you are. It's what he's made you. It's your inheritance. And then you can say with David, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You are my confidence. And that leads into my second point, that real security is a question of belonging. So listen to verse 3. He says, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. It's like he's saying, when God is your security, it inevitably and naturally leads to a sense of belonging with his people. Even more, it leads to delighting in God's people. And yes, that does include the people who annoy you or inconvenience you or in a different social or financial position. But how is your commitment to God's people? Do you have genuine diversity of friendships and associations in the church? And can, can I encourage those of you who aren't signed up to house groups yet to consider joining one and do speak to me, speak to Sam, speak to anyone, and we would love to get you connected with a house group. Living the Christian life alone is not a concept that the Bible recognises and uh, without the encouragement and strength we get from each other, it won't be long till our security in God cools down and dies out. 
It's easy as well, I find, to find ourselves being impressed by the wrong thing, especially in London. Being impressed perhaps by successful, high-powered people or just people with our shared interests. But this passage is teaching that we need to be, or find a way to be more excited about those who know and love Jesus like we do. Because as Paul says elsewhere, the church is the bride of Christ. When I um, think back to my wedding day to Nikki, I will never ever forget standing somewhere similar to where I'm standing now in a church waiting for her to arrive at the other end of the church. And that moment when we first saw each other from either end of the church and just the overwhelming love that I felt in that moment. Now, this is just a droplet compared to the overwhelming, passionate love that Jesus has for his church. And when we grasp that, we won't be so easily impressed, I think, with success, status, and power. And this is personal for me because the church is where my life was changed. I I was a professional backslider at university, not far from here, actually. I was a student in Kensington. I stopped going to church. I partied a lot and basically shoved God out of my life rather unceremoniously and made a lot of mistakes along the way. But a friend invited me to church where I was loved, where I was accepted, and where I heard that Jesus had died for sinners like me, that freedom was available to me, that I didn't need to carry the kind of deep um, existential loneliness that I'd been carrying. And my life was transformed in the church. And so I guess I want to say I believe in the church, and I believe in St. Michael's and the power of St. Michael's in God's hands to do more than we ask or imagine. So real security, it's a question of belonging. And finally, it's a question of enjoyment. So in verse nine, he says, "Um, therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body will also rest secure. It's teaching that God is not so much an object about which we reason and say things, it'd be far more accurate to say God is a reality we enjoy. And yet this idea of enjoying God can sound rather irreligious, can't it? And even blasphemous. Surely God is first and foremost a God that we obey, a God that we submit to, a God that we serve. And this is the key distinguishing um, facet of Christianity from other religions, I would say. And while all of those things are true in a sense, the uniquely Christian understanding of God is that the highest type of honor we can do to him is to enjoy him, to take pleasure in him, to rest in what he has done. And that's why the ultimate prize of the gospel, the ultimate prize of Jesus' death and resurrection isn't something uh, distant like grace, It isn't something strange like eternal life or heaven, although all of those things, again, are true in a sense. The ultimate prize of the gospel is God himself. That's why the height of true worship and prayer, the height of true spirituality, is to say to God, I don't primarily want the things you can give me, God, or the way you might be able to bless me. What I really want is more of you and you alone. And that is why 
This psalm is so deep, I think, because David gets that. He says in verse five, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. Later, he says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And there he's alluding to the book of Numbers, where the land of Cana was divided between different tribes, but the Levites were told, God, your, God himself is your portion. So it's not land, it's God himself who is your portion. Or then when he says in verse 11, you will fill me with joy in your presence. Again, he wants more of God himself. So when we pray like that, it's an indication that we're seeing things as they really are. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. And what's interesting is that both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul in the New Testament quote this verse as a prophecy of Jesus' resurrection. And they say Jesus fulfilled it. Not without reason, because you don't imagine that David would say, do you, you know, uh, I'm never going to see death. And the resurrection is the ultimate basis of our security when times are hard. It's the resurrection that ensures God's victory over death, sin, and suffering. Without the resurrection, Christianity is just nice-sounding spiritual advice. But with the resurrection, we have every reason to have confidence to belong to God's people and to enjoy him. But this is not cheap grace or kind of a cheap joy that's held out to us. The resurrection is only good news because of and through the cross. Psalm 16 only comes because of Psalm 13 and 14 and 15. And in order for us to have ultimate security, Jesus was stripped of his security and safety. As Jesus hung naked and nailed to the cross, he cried out, didn't he? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, Jesus did that so that we could stand confident on his promise. He did that so that we could belong to each other as a church and get over the ways that we grieve each other sometimes and hurt each other. He did that so that we could deeply enjoy his presence with us, which is why I'm so excited in particular about this service at St. Michael's, that we could enjoy his presence no matter how dark it gets. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that in Christ we have a joy and a hope that cannot be taken away from us that you invite us not to sort of slavishly fear you, but to joyfully know you, to enjoy your presence as your children. So we ask that now as we worship, as we pray together, that you would open our hearts to receive more of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.